uh, January uh, teaching uh, pastors at the ministry where uh, my son Mike works, and then we spend a, a week with him and uh, some of the other uh, folks who've come down to do training at, at the, the beach in a, a town called uh, Santa Marianita uh, in Ecuador, right outside of the, the town of Monta. And while we were uh, doing the training, I was, I was teaching uh, pastors on the, the character uh, characteristic or the character uh, traits, I should say, of, of church planners. And uh, one of the guys that was there was a pastor from the beach city that, that we were at, and he found out that, that we were going to his town uh, that particular uh, weekend. And so uh, I'm sitting there, and, and we're, we're talking through a translator, and the next thing I know, I hear the translator say, you are coming to preach at my church this weekend, right? And I'm thinking, like, I'm on vacation, but, uh, you know, what a great honor. And so I got the opportunity uh, to, to preach at uh, this church in, in the town of Monta. Monta's got about a half million people in. It had a, a big earthquake there about three or four years ago. This fellow's church was actually uh, destroyed. And so they're, they're meeting in kind of like this, this office building that they've kind of cleared out. And probably about 100 people or so there. I had called uh, Lindsay, my assistant. I'm like, Lindsay, you got to send me up the message that I preached last weekend because I, I don't want to write something new. And so I, I spent about a couple hours kind of cutting it down because we had to do the translation and stuff. And it was really cool. Uh, my, my son, Mike, got to do it. He did all the translating for me, which uh, was, it's crazy hard and he did a great job. Yeah. So uh, thanks for, uh, you know, thanks for supporting him. I, I know our church family provides for him financially and that many of you do uh, individually. But there's a, a great work that's going on uh, down there in Ecuador, helping these uh, pastors be theologically trained. And so uh, we're excited about that. Well, Pastor Ben got us kicked off on our uh, new series called The Gospel and Government. Uh, he did a, a, a great job uh, last weekend talking about having a biblical worldview and uh, this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the source and nature of government. In order to get started out, uh, I want to tell you a, a story about a, a, a woman named Habib. Uh, back in the spring of 2009, uh, Habib, she's a Somali woman, she was uh, making her way through the, the squalor of uh, a refugee camp where she was living that was on the border between Somalia in Kenya, and there in the midst of a quarter million of her Somali brothers and sisters who are living in this refugee camp, she is fruitlessly, or I should say tirelessly, but also fruitlessly searching for her husband and her eight children who she last saw when a mortar ripped through her home in the Somali capital of Mogadishu. Uh, that was several months before. And as the, her home burned, she and her family scattered into the darkness of the night, and there's mortars blowing up all over the place, and uh, she hadn't seen them since. Now, it had been 18 years since civil war first broke out in Somalia. And during those years, Somalia descended into a state of, of endless chaos it was a country without a government. Uh, nearly every building in the capital city of Mogadishu had been uh, shelled. Uh, some were destroyed. Some were uh, just damaged. Uh, armed uh, clans of thugs uh, made their way through the streets, uh, extorting money, uh, ki kidnapping foreign nationals, raping women, killing at will. Only about 15% of, of 
all the kids in the nation of Somalia actually could even go to church during these times. In the marketplace, everything was for sale. You could go to that marketplace and you could pick up nuts, you could pick up grain, you could pick up livestock. If you needed a cell phone, that cell phone was available for you. And if you had some nefarious plans, you could pick up hand grenades, you could pick up rocket launchers, you could pick up AK-47s. Along the coast, uh, bands of pirates, many of them high on a, on a drug called cot, uh, stalked the vast blue waters, uh, trying to intercept tankers and freighters that were making it to and from the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf. There were no police officers, there was no military, there were no emergency service personnel, there's no sanitation workers, no health care system, no electrical grid. It was exactly how the 17th century philosopher Thomas Hobbes stated when there's no central authority, he said this, life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And that, my friends, was Habib's life. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And unless we have widely traveled this world and have experienced firsthand the struggling countries of this globe, or perhaps we maybe grew up in one of them, it was uh, more than likely if we haven't done that, if we haven't been to faraway places or we haven't grown up in those faraway places, it's hard to imagine what Habib's life must have been like in a country without any type of functioning government. Because in America, we are the beneficiaries of a stable, yet at times imperfect government. Our roads, for the most part, except for in West Virginia, probably are paved. All right, I've been to some places there were county roads in West Virginia that had potholes that would swallow cars, basically. If you're from West Virginia, I, I beg your forgiveness right now, all right? But typically our roads are paved, they're plowed, our water is clean, sewer and sanitation systems effortlessly get rid of our waste, police patrol our streets, emergency service personnel are a three-digit phone call away, there are a variety of schooling options for our kids, we are protected from those who want to do us harm by the most powerful military that there has ever been on the face of the earth. We have the great privilege of selecting those who represent us in government. And we enjoy the seamless transfer of power, whether it be local, state, or national uh, uh, positions of power are transferred seamlessly. And more than anything else, we're the beneficiaries of unparalleled freedoms, not the least of which we are enjoying at this very moment, the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion. We are greatly blessed, and it has been that way for a very long time. Yet sadly, as a result of living in the midst of, of long-term consistent blessing, it is easy to take our government for granted and our government workers for granted. It's easy to complain when our government doesn't work in the manner that we think that it should work. It's easy to hold into contempt those who possess a different political opinion than we have. 
And this attitude of ingratitude, of division, of pride, of tribalism is epidemic in our society as we have witnessed over the last several years. It is tearing our nation apart. It is dividing families, friends, neighborhoods, workplaces, and tragically, even churches. The mean-spiritedness, the hypocritical intolerance of the very ones who pride themselves in their tolerance, the gracelessness of those who say they love grace, yet fail to give it to others, the unwillingness to forgive and to seek forgiveness, it tears apart at the very fabric of our culture. Something has to change, especially for those of us who claim the name of Jesus. And so it's my hope and prayer, and that of Pastor Ben and Mike B., that this eight or nine week series on the gospel and government will serve as a catalyst for change in the lives of everyone here at Living Water. Last week, as I shared earlier, Pastor Ben laid the foundation of the series, challenging us to, to uh, look at the world through the lens of Scripture, rather than looking at the world through the lens of our culture, through popular opinion, and ultimately living a life that's not just informed by God's Word, but one that is ultimately surrendered to God's Word and obedient to God's Word. For it's only when we intentionally view things through a biblical lens that we're able to clearly discern and practice that which is pleasing to God in the midst of all of the chaos and confusion of our culture. Now this week, uh, I'm going to spend some time focusing on the source and the nature of government and the role of Christians as citizens of that government. And then in the remaining weeks, which are going to serve for the, the bulk of this message series, uh, Pastor Ben and Mike B. and myself are going to seek to provide a biblical perspective on a number of controversial political and cultural issues that face our country. I believe it's going to be an interesting uh, couple of months. I told a couple of pastor friends uh, I was planning on doing this. They're like, you're absolutely out of your mind. Uh, hopefully, Pastor Ben and Mike B. and I will have jobs at the end of uh, this series. You know, I've always wanted to uh, work at that little uh, hot dog stand outside of Lowe's. You know, that guy there at Lowe's, uh, like asking people, you know, would you like relish with this hot dog or whatever? So, who knows? That may happen. But, you know, in all seriousness, I would ask uh, that you would pray that God would clearly speak to, to Pastor Ben and Mike B. and myself. Uh, in a lot of ways, uh, we are uh, treading water in uh, waters that are way over our heads. Uh, we're having to use a, a lot of resources that have been written by uh, a lot of different people who are so much smarter than we are. And uh, this is way different than just kind of you know, what we typically do is, hey, here's a passage of Scripture. We're going to kind of methodically work through that. We're going to be doing that, but not like, hey, here's Genesis 25, here's Genesis 26, here's Genesis 27. These kind of topical messages are, uh, they're difficult. And I also would pray, uh, ask you to pray that God's Spirit would, uh, would soften your hearts. You know, all of us have blind spots. Uh, we're a prideful people. Uh, we think that we know it all. Uh, we think that our opinion is the only opinion and that everyone else is wrong. Well, the fact of the matter is 
Uh, every one of us is sinful. Our, our minds are clouded with sin. Uh, we are not all-knowing, uh, and so we, we don't know everything, even though we think we do. And so I, I would ask for you to pray for yourself and pray for your brothers and sisters here at Living Water that, that, that God would soften all of our hearts, that, that he would open our eyes, that, that he would help us to uh, consider things maybe in a way that we had never uh, considered them uh, before so that uh, we can be the catalyst of healing uh, in our nation. So uh, let's get started. If you have a Bible with you today, we're going to be uh, in Romans chapter 13. We're going to work through the first uh, seven verses of Romans 13. If you don't have a, a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, uh, there are Bibles on the tables around the room. Uh, please feel free uh, to grab one. And uh, if you're able, if you'd stand in honor of God's word uh, while I read the passage to you. Uh, Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but the bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honored is owed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, before we work our way through this primary text, I, I want to take some uh, time uh, this morning and to, to show you where the initial foundation of government has come from. Uh, and if we want to find out where the beginning of government is, the obvious place is to look at the beginnings of humanity, which we discover in the book of Genesis especially in the first three chapters. Now, a lot of people spend all of their time in the book of Genesis, and especially those three chapters, asking the question, how did God create things? But the fact of the matter is this, the greater purpose of Genesis, especially those three verses, is we find out why God created all of these things. And we see this in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the flesh of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
You see, God created human beings, you and I, in his image. We are the pinnacle of God's creative efforts. We are unique. We are distinct from everything else in creation. And because we are like God, we are able to do amazing things. We create language. We write novels. We craft sculptures. We build skyscrapers. We transplant organs. We, we create rocket ships and go to distant worlds. And given this uniqueness, God has called us, you and me, human beings, to be the stewards of his creation. He didn't delegate that responsibility to ducks or dogs or dolphins. He delegated it to humans. You see, you and I, we were created for responsibility, to actively manage and to care for God's creation. But God did something else. He also gave us the ability to choose. To choose to love, obey, and worship him, or to choose to love and obey and worship ourselves. And sadly, our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to love, worship, and obey themselves. They weren't content with being created in God's image. Rather, they wanted more. They wanted to be fully God. And in the prideful pursuit, which permeates our world even today, of being our own God, in that prideful pursuit came something they could have never expected. Sin. And with that sin came death. And that death hit very close to home when their oldest son, Cain's jealousy, drove him to murder his younger brother, Abel. Think about that for a moment. One of your children killing another one of your children, all because you chose to be your own God. And from that point forward, folks, the wheels came off. We get to Genesis 6 and we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. Things get so bad, evil is running so incredibly rampant that God decides, you know what? I need a mulligan. I need to start over. I need, to, I need the etch-a-sketch of creation where you can just slide that little guy to the side and it wipes away everything. And so God basically wipes out everything in the earth except for a small remnant of people and animals that are protected through the leadership of a man named Noah. And in Genesis 9, the story gets picked up after the entire world has been wiped out by a great flood, and God speaking to Noah, and this is what we read, and God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand 
they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Notice what happens here. God basically reiterates to Noah the same mandate that he gives to Adam and Eve. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, take dominion over it and manage the whole of creation. But then he adds something. He says, the crime of murder would be paid for by the life of the murderer. Here God is laying the foundation of civil government by establishing the very first civil law for the greatest of crimes, the taking of an innocent life, which is to be enforced by society taking the life of the one who took the original life. And it's here that we discover the, the primary responsibility of civil government. It is to restrain and to punish evil. We'll build on this in a few moments. Now, the, that primary role is closely followed by a, a secondary role that, that pops in and out of, of the Old Testament in lots of different places. But we're going to look at specifically in Psalm 82. This is what it says. The Lord is speaking. He says, How long will you judge unjustly? And show partiality to the wicked. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hands of the wicked. Here we see that, that not only is government responsible with the restraint and the punishment of evil, but it is also to protect the weak the destitute, and the needy by rendering just verdicts and resisting the showing of partiality to the wicked. You see, God gave us civil government because he knows the nature of humanity. God understands that we are a people that is inclined to evil. He understands that the powerful in the world seek to exploit the weak. And so God created civil government to punish the evil and to protect the weak. Civil government wasn't uh, an invention of humanity. It wasn't the product of some great philosophical thinker. It wasn't the result of trial and error. Civil government finds its source in God alone. And the fact that God is the creator of civil government and that civil government is designed to punish evil and to protect the innocent is expanded greatly in those verses out of Romans 13 that we read. And so I just want to take a little bit of time. I want to break this down and, and pull out a couple points from Romans chapter, uh, it's not 7, 13, I should say. And the first is this. In the first two verses, we find that those who possess power and civil government are appointed by God. 
Let me read those verses to you again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul comes right out and states that those who are in positions of authority in civil government are there because God put them there. When it comes to the leaders who serve in our civil government, God is the one who casts the deciding vote. We go to the polls, we pull the levers, we press the buttons, we punch out the little chads, everything gets tabulated, but in the end of the day, according to Scripture, God is the one who makes the ultimate choice. You don't like Donald Trump? You're angry because Nancy Pelosi has the speaker's gavel? You're struggling with the judicial opinions of Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Clarence Thomas? Does AOC and her squad drive you absolutely nuts? Don't blame the Republicans. Don't blame the Democrats. Don't blame the Russians. They didn't put them there. God did. So if you've got a problem with our township dog catcher, you don't like our district attorney, you got a problem with your state representative, some federal judge, a member of Congress, or the President of the United States, we need to take it up with God. Because God's the one who put that person in that position of power. Now I realize... This is a difficult concept to embrace, especially when it comes to leaders who are evil. So am I saying that God allows horrific leaders like Hitler to come into power? Absolutely. Either God is sovereign over all things, or God is sovereign over absolutely nothing. You don't believe me? You don't like that? Wish it wasn't so? Listen to Jesus' interaction with Pontius Pilate. You know that guy? He's the one who happened to nail Jesus on the cross. This is what happens, John 19. Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? In other words, don't you know who I am? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You see, in this passage, Jesus himself affirms that Pilate is in authority because God and God alone has given him that authority. Isn't that amazing? The very person who orders Jesus to be nailed to the cross is put in the position of power by Jesus' dad. Brothers and sisters, that single fact should radically alter the way that you and I view those who've been put in positions of power. God has them there for a reason. It may not make sense to us. 
We might not like it. They might use their authority to do horrific things. But God is God. He is all-powerful. He is all-present. He is all-knowing. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are greater than our ways. And in the words of that Old Testament prophet Daniel, God removes kings and establishes kings. And every one of us, me included, would do very well to remember that. Okay, next couple verses, verses 3 and 4. Civil government punishes bad conduct and approves good conduct. Let me read verses 3 and 4 for you. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. In verse 3, the Apostle Paul's teaching aligns with everything that we learned from Genesis 9, that civil rulers are to restrain evil by the fear of shame and the threat of punishment. So when someone steals our, our parking space in the mall as if it's actually ours, what keeps us from waiting for them to go into the store and then once they go into the store, key their car? What keeps us from doing that? The fear of punishment from civil government. Why don't we rob a bank when we need extra cash? Because there's the fear of punishment from civil government. If there was no civil government, you could go into FMB, tell this, you know, stick my, you know, 40 caliber gun in her face and, and take the money and not worry about it. Nobody's going to do anything to you. We don't do that. Why? Because we fear civil government. Why don't we cheat on our taxes? Because we fear the IRS. Why don't we slow down? Or why do we slow down when we see a police officer? On the other side of the road, because we fear punishment from our civil government. You and I can get up, open our doors, the vast majority of us, at any time of the day, and not be fearful that our neighbors are going to mug us. Why? Because our neighbors fear the civil government. But our civil government does more than just punish bad conduct. It's also there to reward good conduct. You want to know what that looks like? Anybody been uh, playing basketball or, or swimming or working out at the Friendship Club lately? You like the local playgrounds? Have you ever ridden your bike on the green belt? All of those are examples of, of our civil government rewarding good conduct. Many people in our church family have been beneficiaries of significant tax breaks for adopting kids and for taking in foster kids. Why? Because our civil government rewards that positive behavior. The fact that our church is, is tax exempt, that we don't have to pay property taxes or income tax on all the tithes and offerings is an example of our civil government recognizing that, that, that churches are a benefit to their society. It's rewarding our good work. Our church property has that amazing playground out there because the Dolphin County Commissioners and the Swadera Township Commissioners 
thought that Living Water Community Church has been a blessing to our community, and they provided for over half of that playground. Why? Because they are rewarding the good work that is done. Let's keep going. Verse 4 also teaches us that those in civil government are God's servants. Twice in verse 4, Paul states that he is God's servant. Now, if you've been around living water for any period of time, we tell you that when you're reading the Bible and you see repeated words or repeated themes, what's that about? It's like God is shouting. It's bold. It's an exclamation point. It's an underline. It's a highlight. God wants to get across to you and me that those in civil government are his servants. In verse 6, Paul actually ratchets it up. Look at what he calls them. He says that they are ministers of God. Whether our elected officials realize it or not, they are working on behalf of God. When they punish evil, they are working on behalf of God. When they reward good, they are working on behalf of God. And as such, we should remember that. We should view those in our civil government and those who serve us as a gift from God. Now I realize that that is a difficult thing to grasp at times. But if you think about it, even the worst government is better than the anarchy that comes from no government. Just ask our Somali friend, Habib. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that those who serve in civil government will never do evil. There are going to be times that those who are in our civil government are going to reward evil as if it was good and punish good as if it was evil. And sadly, that happens all of the time because those who serve in government are just as sinful as you and I are sinful. And there are many times in God's word that, that, that we see that, that his people call out the government for being evil. John the Baptist calls out King Herod for all the evil things that he had done. Daniel says the King Nebuchadnezzar, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. And during the times of the Old Testament kings, we read time and time again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet, even though that is the case, the institution of civil government is a gift from God. Okay, look again at verses 4 and 5. What we're going to see here is that God ultimately uses civil government to carry out his wrath on those who do wrong. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. See, Paul tells us there is a, a reason why, why police departments and militaries are armed. Their job, whether they realize it or not, is to execute God's wrath on those who do wrong to avenge evil. There are a lot of people in the world that want to say that, that God doesn't demonstrate his wrath. Every day, God demonstrates his wrath through civil government as civil government is used to punish evil. 
And what's remarkable about all of this is that in Romans 12, the chapter right before this, if you ever want to figure out how you're supposed to lead, live, read Romans 12 once. You want to have your world completely rocked? Compare yourself and how you live and how I live to what it says in Romans 12. It will, it will rock your world. If, if a Christian's supposed to live like Romans 12, which they are, by the way, it's a very high standard to hit. But in Romans 12, right before Romans 13, we read this. Beloved, that's you and me, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, as Christians, when we are sinned against, it is not our job to avenge ourselves. Now, I know that's the natural tendency. When someone does me wrong, I want to push back, and I want to push back hard. But that's not what we're called to do. It's not our responsibility to track down the evil person and make them pay. Instead, we're told, what? We're to leave it up to God. And how does God avenge us? Many times... He uses civil government as the instrument of his justice. That's why we appeal to courts for justice. That's why we don't have vigilante rule. When someone murders your family member, you don't go out and murder them. You go to court, the court tries them, and the government puts the, the vengeance of God on them. That's the way it's supposed to work. Now, before we wrap things up here, we've got to answer this question. If that's the nature of civil government. How in the world are you and I as Christians supposed to interact with that government? Well, Paul is very clear. Look again at Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. You see, as citizens, God commands us to subject ourselves to civil government and to obey its rules. He's very clear. He actually repeats it in 1 Peter. Peter tells us this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, I want you to consider the time in which this is written. Who's in charge in the first century? Rome. Who's running the scene? Nero. What's Nero doing? He, he needs some lamps for his garden. So he's dipping Christians in tar and lighting them on fire. He, he's angry with Christians. So what does he do? He feeds them the lions if he's nice. If he's not feeling really nice, he takes one arm and ties it to a rope and ties it to a horse. He takes the other arm and ties it to a rope and ties it to a horse and has them rip you in half. Rome was horrific. You got problems with Washington, D.C.? Huge problems with Rome. And that's when these words are being written. And, and these guys... They, they have experienced this firsthand. And God is calling you and I to be models of civil obedience. We're to follow the laws. We're to pay our taxes. And 1 Timothy tells us this, that we're to pray 
for our government officials. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet, godly and di- life, qu- godly and dignified in every way. Why should we do this? Why should we pray for these people? So that we can lead peaceful and quiet lives that are dignified in every way. And from what I have seen on social media over these many years that I served as a pastor, and some of the things that I hear coming from the mouths of people in our church family, I've come to realize this is a struggle for us. In the past, some of us haven't been very godly or dignified in the things that we post or the things that we say. We have sinned and our sinful behavior has damaged the cause of Christ. I'm going to try to do a little exercise here. We're going to do a a little word substitution here using verse 1 from 1 Timothy 2. Let's just replace the term all people with some particular people. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for President Donald Trump. Therefore, first of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for Speaker Pelosi. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for Majority Leader McConnell. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for for Senator Bernie Sanders. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for Senator Elizabeth Warren. First of all, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be be made for Governor Wolf. First of all, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for Mayor Pappenfus. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for Commissioner Connolly. The last time I checked, every one of them falls into all people. But praying for them, submitting to their governance, isn't just good for them. It's good for us. The prophet Jeremiah, he is writing in a time when the nation of Israel has been forcibly removed from their country and has been taken into captivity in Babylon. And this is what we read. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All you folks that I, God, have moved from Jerusalem to Babylon. Why? Because I use the Babylonians as instruments of my wrath against you followers of me because you haven't been following me. He says, you folks, build houses in Babylon and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there 
and do not decrease. What is he saying? He's saying you're going to be there for a while. You're going to be living in exile for a while. And then he says this, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile and pray the Lord on its behalf to those people who have put you in exile. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Brothers and sisters, the same holds true for you and me. How that city goes, just nine blocks from here, is how the entirety of the region goes. It's easy to not live in that city and to ridicule what happens there. It's easy to make fun of, of Mayor Reed or, or former Mayor uh, Linda Thompson or, or Mayor Papenfus. It's, it's easy to, to sit back when, when your school district is functioning perfectly because you've got tons of tax money and, and you've got two parents raising the kids and look at the Harrisburg School District and say it's run by a bunch of fools. The fact of the matter is this. There are godly people that are working in that city and godly people that are working in that school district, many of them who worship with us. And they need our prayers and our encouragement because the way that city goes is the way Marysville goes, and the way Lemoyne goes, and the way that Camp Hill goes, and the way that Laura Paxton goes, and the way that Susquehanna goes. It's our calling to pray for those who've been put in positions of power and for the welfare of our community, because as it goes for them, it goes for us. And when we pray for those leaders and we pray for our city and community, we ultimately are benefited. Now, there are some who are saying, whoa, 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 Pastor Mike. You mean I'm supposed to obey all of the time? That regardless of what those folks say, I'm supposed to do it? Is there ever a time that we should disobey our civil government? The answer is absolutely. Whenever... What the government wants us to do that is in direct violation of God's law, disobedience is not just appropriate, it's actually mandated by God. Remember what happens in Acts chapter 3 and 4? Uh, the, the, the new church, the, the church is just beginning. Jesus is raised from the dead, 3,000 people ha have been saved, and, and uh, in Acts 3 and going into 4, that, that Peter and John, they heal this lame beggar who's in the temple. And then Peter gives this unbelievable sermon in the midst of the temple. And he says, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that you may send the Christ, uh, uh, and that you may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus. And the religious leaders of, of their day, they're, they're seeing this healing, they're hearing this sermon, and they are going nuts. They can't take it after a while. And they grab Peter and John, and they throw them in jail. And they stay in that jail overnight. And then the next day, they pull them out. And Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 
uh, 5 begins this. I don't have it on the big screen. Let me just read it to you here. It says this, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes, this is the religious leaders who threw them in jail, gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, in other words, when they set uh, Peter and John in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? You know, you should ask questions that you know the answer to. They're about to get rocked. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the peoples and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed, done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they, the religious leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Might the same be said of us. But seeing the men who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When the crippled guy is healed and he's standing there, it's kind of like, I don't think we can argue against this one. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, in other words, when they threw uh, Peter and John out of the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. It's like everybody saw that this dude got healed. What are we going to do? But in order that it may be spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You see, the clear teaching here is what? That God requires his people to disobey the civil government if that obedience would mean directly disobeying God. So how do we wrap this up? One final set of verses. The greatest commandment. Matthew 25. Some people came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Brothers and sisters, 
We have trouble with the second one. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love is the foundation of everything. If you want justice, you got to have love. If you want kindness, you got to have love. If you want peace, you got to have love. Love is the foundation of everything. And this animosity that we've got going on in our world, this lack of love that is played out and displayed every day on the television and in the news and in social media, that lack of love has to be transformed. And it begins with you and me. There's a reason why we're doing this series at this time. This is not a coincidence. Four years ago, Pastor Ben and I, last night I said we were caught with our pants down, but that was a bad illustration. <laughs> we were unprepared for the election in 2016. I'll be really honest. I went to bed that night. I didn't stay up for the results. I went to bed that night thinking that Hillary Clinton was going to be the president of the United States. I woke up in the morning, Donald Trump was the president of the United States. But what I, I wasn't prepared for that, but what I really wasn't prepared for was how the wheels went off in this place. Social media at Living Water Community Church went insane. I had people calling me, they're like, you will not believe, Pastor Mike, what so-and-so just posted. And I, I go out there, I start looking at stuff, I'm like, this is nuts. We've got people who, who are like, this guy, he's president, the world is going to implode. We've got other people, this guy is president. It's the greatest thing on the face of the planet. And they're arguing with one another and they're trying to drag me into the fray. I spent three weeks going to people's homes, trying to talk them off the ledge, saying, last time I checked... Your allegiance isn't to Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Your allegiance is Jesus Christ. Donald Trump isn't dying on the cross for you. Hillary Clinton didn't die on the cross for you. And we need to remember that. And we need to help people. We need to love them and care about them. Love allows you to, to, to be able to disagree with somebody. In our culture now, if you disagree with me, you reject me, and I hate you. That's not the way that it works. It's okay to disagree with someone if you do it in a kind way. It's healthy. It's okay to, to listen to the opinion of somebody else. Why? Because we don't have the lion's share of truth in ourselves. It's best to have friends from, from different walks of life and different ethnicities and different political positions. We all should be able to figure out how to get along. Why is our government stuck? Because there's 435 representatives, 100 senators, and a president and vice president who do not understand love. And everybody digs their heels in. And they hate one another. 
And guys, we cannot do it here. In the next six weeks, seven weeks, we are going to talk about some crazy stuff. We're going to talk about gender issues. We're going to talk about the environment. We're going to talk about racism and immigration. They are hot-button issues. And if you're going to come to this place and you're all dug in your heels, you're going to end up leaving. Don't do that. Come here, look at God's word, see what it says, and surrender to it. And allow it to inform the way that you and I look and interact with our culture. And if a change happens amongst 900 people of Living Water Community Church, it can spread. And it's not going to be perfect, and we're not going to do it all right. But I believe God will be glorified because we're called to love him and love others. Let's pray together. Most holy God, as citizens of this blessed nation, we acknowledge your spirit's work in human government. We acknowledge that human government works for the welfare of people, for justice for the poor, for mercy towards the prisoner, and works to oppress, uh, or works to stop ungodly oppression, Heavenly Father. And we pray that, that you would, would help our, our civil government to do those things. Help us, Heavenly Father, to submit to the human authorities which have been placed above us. May we pray for our leaders and those who serve in our halls of government. May we work for the betterment of our society. May we seek to bless our community and in turn be blessed. We confess that there are times that we must obey you over all other rulers. And when that time comes, might we wait upon the work of your spirit. Might you fill us with the patience of Christ. Might you help us to trust into the truth and the faithfulness of your word. And may we remember always that we, first and foremost, are ultimately citizens of heaven, strangers and aliens in this world. And you have promised us, Heavenly Father, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We pray that you would fill each of us with the fruit of the Spirit of Christ who works for peace on the earth, who commands us to love our enemies, who calls for grace among the nations. We thank you for your work among governments. We thank you for, for how, Lord, you work at times to seek to resolve disputes by means other than war. Lord, for placing human kindness at times above nationalism. Lord, empower us to heed your Spirit's call to love one another, especially our enemies. Help us to put love above ideology, kindness above political party, grace above vindictiveness, and most of all, the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ above every earthly agenda. May you be glorified in our lives, in our family, in our nation, in our world, and in our church. We pray these things. In the mighty and risen name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Would you stand as we prepare to close?